You know, a startup is a very risky endeavor, I just want to remind everyone, and most fail, meaning they return less than the invested capital and often zero. So if you take outside money like we all do, we have a fiduciary responsibility to care for that money and to use our best efforts to get a return for that outside money. So we have to care about M&A because a sale of a company is the main way to achieve a return for investors and a return for you. Welcome to another episode of Startup Health Now. We've got a very exciting fireside chat today with two of my favorite people, uh, Samer Hamada, who is the, the co-founder and CEO of Zeal, a uh, startup health company, and James Marciano, who is the founder of Tuck Advisors, also a startup health investor and longtime serial entrepreneur and investor himself. Uh, it's going to really be an exciting show today. We're going to talk on the topic of M&A. Um, and really dig into all the ins and outs and things that entrepreneurs and health transformers need to think about from the very, very early stages of, of building their business all the way through uh, potential opportunities. So welcome, Samer and James. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Thank you, Unity. To kind of frame things, I mentioned you guys are both um, serial entrepreneurs yourself. You're both investors. You're both advisors. And sit on boards. You've really seen so many different things. We'd love to learn a little bit more about your backgrounds just to set the context and then we'll dig into kind of the core of the conversation. James, why don't we start it start with you because you built some companies and now you're you've uh, with Tuck Advisors really work with companies to help them scale and and work on uh, M&A opportunities. I'd love to hear more about your background, James, and, and Tuck Advisors, just to kick things off. Sure, thanks, Unity. Um, so uh, as Unity said, we've been friends for a long, long time. I started back in 1995, uh, building one of the first social networks on the web called thesquare.com, and then started another company called Referit uh, back in 1997, uh, which was a, a first director of affiliate programs for e-commerce companies. And then the third company called Return Path, uh, which was just acquired last year. And so I you know, started those three companies, you know, raised angel investment and raised Series A actually for the square 48 hours before uh, the market crashed in New York. So we were the last, the last company in New York to get funded. It was really an amazing time. And um, you know, through that process, had some, some offers for our companies and really weren't, uh, weren't really ready for them. And uh, we called them UFOs, unsolicited flying offers. And we went up hiring an investment bank in San Francisco, and, and frankly, they didn't do a very good job. And um, so after I sold it, we went up selling those three companies, and then I became an angel investor for about a dozen years. And we moved, to, moved out of New York to raise our family here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I was really anxious to get back to building something myself. And um, again, my own experience had been pretty poor hiring uh, investment bankers for M&A. And so five years ago, we decided to start to Tuck Advisors to help other entrepreneurs. Uh, make sure they, they maximize their exit. And, and what types of companies do you work with? Do you work at companies at all stages or a particular stage or, or sector? Yeah, so I mean, I'm a, I'm a startup guy and I really love working with other entrepreneurs. So we work in what's called the lower middle market. So enterprise value, call it five to 100 million. And we, um, you know, and we, we focus specifically on health tech and we also do some ed tech. Uh, and we, you know, we love working with younger companies that are 
you know, a year or two away from exit because it's just an opportunity for us to get to know them better and to help them along. Sometimes there's opportunities to do buy side work, even for small companies. And we're now also doing capital raises. So we do, um, you know, sell side, buy side and, uh, and capital raises. All right. And so we'll dig into some of that in a second. But Sam, I want to also refresh everyone um, on who you are and some of your background. You've, you've got such a diverse background as a longtime serial entrepreneur, member of the startup health, uh, health transformer ecosystem, uh, investor yourself, board member yourself of different organizations. Um, share a little bit more about, about you, Samer. Yeah, thanks, Unity. First, James, you beat me to the punch on starting a tech company. I started my first one in December 1996, vault.com. And with respect to M&A, I've, I've got two direct experiences. So I was right on the front line selling vault.com in 2007 to PE, is between PE and a strategic done in Bradstreet. And then uh, I was right on the front line selling campusfood.com to Grubhub back in 2011 as interim CEO and a board member. And I've been part of lots of sales along the way as, you know, as a strategic you know, angel investor, uh, obviously, and, and advise a lot of founders on, on M&A. So I've got a lot of views on M&A, which we'll be happy to share today. It'll be a fun conversation. In terms of investing, yeah, I've got a fund at Lightspeed Venture Partners, a scout fund. I'm a venture partner and advisor at, at Alpaca Ventures here in New York City. And uh, I love startup health. I think I was in the first cohort, right, Unity? So very beginning, uh, very beginning. Yeah, very, very beginning. And you know, Zeal was always an unusual company, which isn't necessarily the conversation for today, where we're delivering massage therapy to the home. And COVID, which kicked our butt, was the conversation of the fireside chat a few months ago, how we were, you know, sort of pivoting and expanding into in-home healthcare with nurses and physical therapy and some other uh, services. Anyway, today's about M&A, so excited to dive into the topic and also answer people's questions. You know, the world's changed, obviously. We're a year into the pandemic. Um, I think it's a very confusing time for, for growing companies. Um, in one sense, you're hearing about these multi-billion dollar transactions, companies like Livongo and Teladoc merge, uh, you know, almost a $19 billion merger. Um, we're seeing even companies in the startup health portfolio, um, big, big uh, mergers and acquisitions like doctor.com and, and Press Ganey um, just announced Gene by Gene and MyDNA, uh, Cloudbreak uh, and UpHealth doing a SPAC. Um, but there's also a lot of companies that are going through transition. Um, figuring out what's next. How do you guys both view the kind of the, the moment we're in um, and what's your perspective? Are you optimistic? Are you um, think there's certain things that the broader kind of community should really be thinking about strategically as they're setting themselves up for going into 2021 um, and, and managing their business. We'd love to hear from both of you on this. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly gonna be a lot of winners and losers. So as I said, we, we represent, uh, you know, mostly healthcare companies, health tech. And, you know, we had a client this past year that sold to hospitals and, you know, they, 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 you know, the CEO and the board decided they wanted to go out to market. And as you can imagine, you know, uh, if you sell to hospitals and you're trying to sell your company to, to a company that also sells to hospitals, right, which is 
a pretty you know typical kind of M and A scenario where you're finding a buyer that has the same uh, customers that you do. Um, you know, everybody was just in panic mode, right? Like hospitals are losing tens of millions of dollars, you know, a day, and there's no there was no appetite for um, for trying to acquire another asset. There was just people were just trying to stabilize their own their own companies. You know, I think you know, and there's a difference there between you know PE companies and, and you know PE firms and strategics. I think the PE guys kind of rolled with it a little bit better. If you're selling a larger asset to a PE firm, maybe had a little bit more luck last year. Strategics, again, we're just in survival mode. But then we also have, you know, uh, two healthcare companies we're representing now, one in a, uh, well, it's going to be a $10 million Series B. It looks like it's going to be more like 20 or 30 million that does telehealth. So, you know, huge, huge winner in, in COVID. And then another company we've been working with for three years, uh, behavioral healthcare company, but uh, we helped them acquire two, you know, found and helped them acquire two digital assets uh, last year. And now we'll be taking them out to market um, just because again, you know, obviously things are super hot for, for behavioral health. So certainly, certainly winners and losers, but no doubt that COVID's accelerated lots of things in healthcare and uh, it's definitely an exciting time. Yeah, and I, I would add Unity uh, that, you know, obviously I'm not a macro economist, but with interest rates really low, obviously, and the government spending a ton of money right now, people want to invest in the next thing that could make them more money. And right now that's stocks, private or public. And so with respect to health tech, which is probably the hottest sector right now, it feels like there's just so much money out there. And I think it's gonna be out there for the next you know, 18 to 24 months, at least from the experts I talk to, uh, not just because of the money too, but there's also just a ton of innovation. Uh, you always said Unity, you and Steve, when you started Startup Health, that health is one of the last sectors that have not really gone through the technology revolution through the revolution of software eats the world that you know, Mark Andreessen always talked about, but it's now happening and it's happening so fast because of COVID and it's such an enormous sector. So at, at Startup Health, we focus on long-term and collectively achieving health moonshots. So we're always really trying to get to the core of how we can help our companies scale, how they can make a greater impact and um, let's just dig into this topic of, of M&A. I think it's, it's a broad topic, obviously, and I think um, it means a lot of different things um, depending on uh, when and why and how and the stage and all sorts of things. But um, let's, just, let's just start um, digging into some of this. And, and really, I'd love to understand from both of your perspectives, when or why should, should founders even begin to start thinking about uh, M&A, mergers and acquisitions opportunities as a way to, to help them accelerate their business or, or really help them achieve their health moonshot? I, I can start off, James. Um, you know, a startup is a very risky endeavor. I just want to remind everyone. And most fail, meaning they return less than the invested capital and often zero. So for the founder or founders, a return of just the invested capital often means that founder gets zero because the invested capital is invested with a liquidation preference. So if you take outside money like we all do, we have a fiduciary responsibility to care for that money and to use our best efforts to get a return for that outside money. Otherwise, don't take the money. So we have to care about M&A because a sale of a company is the main way to achieve a return for investors and a return for you as the founder. Obviously, the other ways are you can create a profitable dividend-paying company. That's actually what we did at Vault before we sold it. 
Um, and that's a rare thing, I think, in the tech world. The other way is to create enough perceived value, right, that a future fund buys shares from early investors and you get some liquidity that way. And the third way is to go public, right, which is currently a pretty hot way for health tech companies. But that's, that's why we have to care about M&A. That's what it's all about. And I would just add to that, you know, you should always be prepared. Because if you get one of these UFOs against unsolicited client offer, you have to be able to weigh that uh, against what your other opportunities are. So if you're kind of caught flat-footed and you're not paying attention and, you know, you don't have your, your books in order and, and um, other things, right, it's going to be hard to get a transaction done. And so, you know, I think that that's the other thing is, uh, you know, just be ready. And I once had a, a colleague of mine, I remember it was, uh, it was on the West Coast um, and uh, it was in my office at 55 Broad Street across from New York Stock Exchange. It was, it was Christmas Eve, 1998. And uh, it was probably like 11 o'clock at night. We're both working. And he said, you know, um, you should always know who you're going to sell your company to before you start it. And, you know, maybe that's not entirely true, but I think there is some wisdom there. And I think it's important to remember, you know, that half of all M&A transactions happen because of an existing strategic partnership. And so, um, and I think the primary you know, reason for that is that as a, you know, as a sell-side advisor, the hardest thing for me to do is explain to somebody that's never heard of your company, why they should care, right, what you do. Yeah. So if you're already in the mix, right, and you're working with people and you're in their stack or whatever, you know, forming those relationships can be a really helpful way to get your, you know, potentially, you know, get an exit. But again, I think you know, the, the key message is, you know, kind of be prepared and be thinking about it and be open-minded. You, you mentioned this concept of UFOs, which I, I'd love you to unpack a little and, and really explain what that is. Are you seeing more of them? Um, and, how, and, and then leading into how can companies or founders start to be prepared, as you say? Yeah, you know, we, we're all startup folks here, right? And so you have this constant uh, push and pull between, hey, I want to build a product and I need to go raise money to build my product. Right. And I, what I always say is if you, if you build something of value, the investors will find you. And the same is true of, of buyers. And so when a company gets a UFO, right, that's a signal to us at Tuck Advisors that they've built something of value, right? Because I like to say that good companies don't go unnoticed for long. So how do you guys know when to take one of these unsolicited flying offers seriously? You know, time is, is so valuable to all founders, as everybody knows, um, you know, you don't want to waste any time on just random things that come in. How do you start to decipher the signals that there's there's something worth investing time in? What are some some lessons learned from both of you? Well, I want I want to add to what James was saying. It, it does partially go back to being prepared, Unity. So you know, obviously, if you get a call from a brand name strategic or one of your partners or a, or a PE shop that's well funded, you know that they're probably taking it seriously. Um, you know, you I, I call them UFOs because a lot of times they're just a hoax, right? And they come in, and we've had these experiences where you know they they, they drag the team into it, and it's not only time and energy, but also emotionally. Right, as a founder, you start to kind of get one foot out the door, and it's really hard to then re-engage if that UFO flies away. We typically get engaged when a company has one or two or more UFOs. You know, we come in and we look at it, and you know, most of the time, you know, they've signed an NDA, but it's not really sufficient. Right? There's, there's, there should be a carve out for a, for a no poach clause for for employees and for customers, and sometimes that's missing if it was sent over from the other side. So we always first look at those NDAs. But then you really try to you really try to put structure around the process because again you don't want to waste time, 
so by the time we've gotten to the conversation, often it's been you know, a couple of weeks or months that they've been talking. So in one with one healthcare company, they've been talking to two UFOs for six months. We came in and we shut it all down, and we said, you know, LOIs are due uh, in ten days, right? You guys have talked enough. And so we got those two LOIs in, and one one was for um, six point nine million, the other one was for twelve million. Client was really happy about the twelve million. We started marching down. You know, they flew fourteen other people out to three different conference rooms at our client site. And three weeks before we were supposed to close, they got involved in a you know multi hundred million dollar acquisition in Europe. And they said, you know, can you can you just wait for us, right? We need to do this other thing first. Can you wait for us? We'll be back in six months. At that point, I said, look, we've been completely transparent with you that if you slow this process down, we've built a book, we've built a buyer list, we're going to go out to market. So we went out to market, wound up getting ten weeks later, we got an offer for twenty four million. So you know, that's the idea of kind of making sure you put structure around the process, putting in time limits. And having a second best alternative, right? If we hadn't had that buyer list in that book, we made us we might have stuck around for six months, but our client knew that we were ready to go and put some pressure on the deal, and you know, it turned out very well. James, could you share kind of a tale of two companies? One, when you first look at it, it's like, wow, the this company's really prepared, and then one that isn't. And with the with the goal here of we obviously want as many founders as possible to be thinking early, really from the early stages of building their business on what they should be working towards to package their their operation up in a way that really shows that they're on the one side of, of value versus the other. Yeah, well, on, on the CFO topic, I've spent the morning interviewing three different CFOs for a client of ours where we're doing the Series B capital raise because they don't have good financial controls in place. So I'm literally on the call with the lead investor interviewing the CFOs so that we can get this transaction across the finish line by February 15th. That's not the place you want to be, right? Like we're, we're trying to find these numbers. The worst thing that can happen in an M&A transaction is the numbers start to shift into change. And so I'd say, you know, Samer hit the nail on the head with, with making sure that the books are in order, financials are in order. You understand how you book a contract. If you have a SaaS business, how do you recognize that, you know, that ratably over time, all those things, it doesn't cost a ton, right? To do it the right way. And so, so you really want to be prepared there. And so this is just an example of a really great company doubling in revenue every year, right? You know, they did 7 million last year and SAS will do 14 million this year. And they just don't have, you know, founded by two engineers, uh, super brilliant people, you know, PhDs, but they didn't have the business people, you know, in the company to be able to handle this type of stuff. And then we have another client where, you know, they have the, you know, they have the team, they have the controls, uh, you know, they outsource their taxes and that sort of thing, but all the books are there. Everything's neat. They've got a, Everybody should have a dashboard, right? A management dashboard you're looking at daily, weekly, or monthly, you know, all the KPIs in place. Again, this doesn't necessarily have to cost a lot as a startup. Um, there's plenty of resources online to figure it out. But those sorts of controls need to be put in place so that when you get a situation like Samarhead, uh, you know, you, you, you can get through the due diligence. Otherwise, again, you're going to wind up wasting a lot of time and potentially the deal's going to break. Yeah, and if you've ever seen one of these due diligence lists, I mean, there are many pages. There's like 50 to 100 items. The key ones are finance, which we've been talking about a ton here. Tech and product matter too. So I always sit down with our CTO, like, hey, we got to make sure all the passwords are buttoned up. All of the code is, you know, you know, written down and organized into a book. I think now people organize everything in GitHub, but in the old days it was a book and you would you know, map out all of the systems because they're going to do tech due diligence as well. They're going to do legal due diligence. Again, like I said earlier, are all the contracts signed? 
are, are the clauses in some of your contracts that say this contract will continue upon a change of control. No idea how many of those contracts you'll have where like, hey, we get to decide if we get if we will even assign this contract to your new owner. And that could be a significant contract. We we think about those things every day when we're signing contracts now because again, we're thinking ahead about what will eventually happen in a sale. We'll make sure to assign all our contracts, all of our IP. So, so anyway, there's a long list that you'd go through, and that would be the topic for a different session, obviously. We have, as you know, there's pre-revenue companies, there's companies doing 20, 30 million dollars of revenue and everything right. in between. Um, would you both advise, you know, to start focusing on these things like from the inception of your business? I do inception now because yeah, I've learned the hard way by losing deals when I was, you know, younger and less experienced. So yeah, we, we, we close our books every month, even pre-revenue, just it's in, it's in the, you know, we get into the habit. We, uh, we make sure every contract signed, it does cost more money than you probably have initially, but it just, it just, you know, softens that pain later that you'll experience if you don't have it together. So you have to do it. And the, the contracts one is a great point, you know, it, depending upon if you can uh, transfer the contract to a new owner, that's oftentimes going to uh, predict whether you're going to need to do a stock sale or an asset sale, right? So that's stuff's going to tie into the legal. And I think it's important to also just kind of sequence some of these events. So, you know, if, you, if you're responding to a UFO, or if you're going out through an auction process, you know, you're going to have a, a book, you're going to share information, you know, make sure the NDA is signed if it's more information than you want to share publicly. And then you're gonna you're gonna you know you're gonna do a two-step dance. You can have an indication of interest where people are expressing a range of what they might pay based on the information you know. And for those companies that are in your wheelhouse, right, they're in the range. You're gonna invite them to management presentations. So, uh, you know, this Thursday, for example, I'm I'm booked for nine hours straight, three three-hour management presentations for a client of ours. You want to do it together so you're not giving one company an advantage over another. And then, um, and then from there, you're going to ask for an LOI probably two weeks after that, a letter of intent. So there'll be about two weeks where you can ask questions back and forth. Once you get the letter of intent in, you're going to want to, you know, it's going to be hopefully, you know, apples to apples, but a lot of times it's apples to oranges. So you're going to try to get those, you know, try to try to figure out what the best deal is for you. And then you're going to, you know, kind of announce the winner. You're going to keep the other ones warm. And, and the important thing is, you know, really the key to getting the deal closed is making sure that you have a good M&A lawyer because right? it's a different type of law. And you're going to have an LOI that really sets the roadmap. So that LOI wants to be very specific in terms of indemnity caps and you know, agreements for founders and you know, all those things. We have a list of, I don't know, 15 or 17 things that we want bidders to, to respond to. Because if you have that good roadmap, and maybe, maybe it costs you another week or two of legal fees, but once you have that roadmap, then you can move to phase three and you can get through those legal contracts much more quickly without, um, without a lot of discussion. So, so James, you, you started getting into this and I want to unpack it a little. You talked about two, two things. One, the process of, of M&A. Um, so just really framing the steps from, from beginning to end and, and time. And, and you talked about the, uh, the way you do it. I think that'd be very helpful. And then two, you talked about some of the partners that makes sense for you as a, a founder to start surrounding yourselves with whether it's uh, a law firm, M&A lawyer, et cetera, who are the types of partners that companies should start to build relationships with early? And what does that look like? And then we're gonna dig into some of the questions that are coming in from the team. Sure, I mean, look, I would say, 
there are very few uh, M&A advisors that will work in the lower middle market. So if you have an enterprise value of you know, 10, 15, 25, $50 million, which of course, by the numbers, there's lots of those companies. It's just very hard to find somebody who, who's willing to focus on that. Most companies are set up to do much larger transactions, which is why I started Tech Advisors to help other entrepreneurs. Um, so I would say if you can start to socialize your company with M&A advisors, just to let them know who you are, and the more they can learn about your company, the, the better they can represent you in the future, right? So we love working with companies a year or two before exit. Definitely M&A lawyers. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I apologize in advance if there are any lawyers on this call, but I just hate lawyers. <laughs> Drives me nuts. I see one question that's come in Unity. Should we yeah, yeah, um, jump on yeah, it from Javier? Yeah. Uh, if you're there, Javier, if you could come off mute and frame your question, that'd be great. Otherwise, I'll just ask it. Thanks so much. It's been awesome so far. Um, Javier Evelyn out of Allergy out of Detroit. Um, just kind of getting a sense of, uh, I had an advisor some time ago kind of saying, hey, you can get some insights when you kind of take a look into those 10K, 10Qs. And that seems like crystal ball. We know that there's a lot of like um, uh, intangibles beyond that. So relationships, obviously, um, it's kind of like a lot of smoke and mirrors because there's other competitors looking at that as well. But from a starting perspective to kind of have an initial list, what are your thoughts on the validity of kind of using that as a filter first and foremost, and then kind of maturing Obviously, when you get to the level where we start talking to you guys, if that makes sense. Sure. No, it does, Javier. I mean, you're talking about public companies, obviously. There are no filings for private companies uh, or PE funds for that matter. But I, I, do, I do as much research as I can when I get a UFO, especially if it's not someone we're currently partners with, to find out if it's a fishing expedition and they've got a, you know, portfolio companies or a strategy inside that there's no way they're going to partner with us. And they're just trying to learn a lot, which happens a lot. Uh, which is why, again, not, you know, I, I know James, you can't plug yourself. I'll plug you for you because you're one of those amazing, you know, M&A advisors because you're a former entrepreneur, so you get it, and you charge very reasonable fees relative to what others do. But, you know, a, a good advisor will, you know, have provide cover for you, you know, so they, they can sort of keep keep some of those bad actors at bay. But yeah, the 10Ks and the 10Qs will give you some insight. The, the, they often won't really tell you about a skunk works project. That's not something that has to be disclosed in public filings. So, you know, look at those, talk to other partners. Uh, we've also done, uh, a lot of people don't know about this. You ask your law firm to do a litigation search to see if there have been any lawsuits that startups have filed against this potential company. Uh, we've found some interesting ones sometimes that way when a UFO comes in. But yeah, the, the broader concept that you should do a lot of you know, research to make sure you're talking to somebody truly legitimate. Yeah, for public companies, you know, I sometimes will listen into the calls with, you know, they do the quarterly calls and I've gotten uh, you know, a lot of good information there. I remember one company we were selling and the deal wasn't done yet. And we were on the call and the CEO announced it to you know, all the, you know, all the uh, people on the call that they were getting this deal done. And so at that point, we knew we had them over a barrel and we were negotiating this one. I was say like, yeah, you got to use that to your advantage. But we got them an extra two million bucks because these guys were revealed it a couple of days before we were supposed to close. So knowledge is power. Well, I, th I think um, Javier's question also got me thinking about there's, there's two perspectives here. There's our companies looking to be acquired by someone else. But there's also our companies who are looking to either merge or acquire other companies so that they can maybe scale more quickly. I'm wondering if you guys could both um, unpack that a little as, as thinking about M&A as a growth opportunity um, and really merging with other partners 
um, in a way that kind of sets you up for the future. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, I don't have a ton of experience, admittedly. The only one I have is I was serving as the interim CEO of campusfood.com. So obviously it's in the health tech space, it's a food delivery company. And at the time, there were a number of players, including Grubhub, and we were all pretty tiny. We were about 7 million of net revenue. So think about that for a moment, about, about, about 50, 60 million of gross revenue. And now this space is billions and billions of dollars. So very early, VCs weren't that interested in the space. I'll give a lot of credit to Bill Gurley, who came to our office and Grubhub's office and Seamless's office and asked us to do a three-way merger, which he would fund because he's like, I don't want to pick one of you guys and waste a bunch of time competing. I did that with Open Table back in the 90s and early 2000s, and it just burned so much cash. The founders couldn't get out of their own way because of all the egos to actually do the merger. He got very frustrated. It's about six months of dance. So finally, he just said, screw it. I'm just going to put money in Grubhub. To their credit, they had just launched the first iPhone app for mobile for, for food delivery to, you know, to the home. So because they did that, they tripled almost overnight. And so he put the money in, which then anointed them as the winner, which forced us and Seamless eventually to merge. So we did merge. It was uh, primarily an all cash buyout, but we also ended up investing in the, the merger round, if you will. So at any rate, there, it made a ton of sense. We're all competing against each other for consumers and for restaurants. And by doing the merger, as you know, Grubhub then went public. And so he took like this $300 million merger and turned it into, I think Grubhub's now a $12, $13 billion company. And I thought the space was over by then. I really did. And now you see DoorDash and Uber Eats and all these other players too, which is just fascinating to me. You know, like, I don't think the food delivery space is that big. But anyway, your broader point that doing a merger sometimes to really attack a market is to stop like cutting each other up to death makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, oftentimes smaller companies don't think about m and And the fact is you don't have to have a lot of cash, right? In, in Summer's example, you can do, uh, if, the, if, the, if the principals can get out of their own way and figure out how to, you know, proportionally rate their companies in a fair way, right? You could put, put them together and, uh, and go attack the market. I think, you know, one thing that, that we found, and this, this may seem a little counterintuitive, but, but I actually firmly believe that your salespeople might be the might there might be the best ideas for many companies your salespeople because they're the ones that are going to be on the front lines that know who else your customers are working with in terms of vendors, and again because most M and A happens between companies where you have a a shared customer right like I'm I'm selling you know apples you're selling oranges we're selling to the same grocery store right like maybe and I have a huge I have a thousand grocery stores I'm selling to you and you have fifty right I can put your app oranges in my into my apple bag and now we can sell it to a thousand stores that's how a lot of m a happens so if you are you know if you're talking to your sales team and they're telling you about maybe what other vendors your customers are using that might be an opportunity for you to gain insight into either a company that you might want to buy or, or merge with or potentially could acquire you i i have a, I have a very I have a great very quick story about that you know i'll just tell you my, my next door neighbor I can, i'm looking at his house to my left works at a CRM company uh, that does for wealth managers. And there was a company that they referred all their customers to for portfolio balancing. It's like this piece of the business that they didn't do. They didn't have a native way of doing it. Well, the other four companies in their space all referred their business to this same one company too. Well, one of those companies wound up buying that 
balancing portfolio balancing companies. And now the other four companies are screwed because now they got to build it themselves. Why didn't, you know, why didn't my neighbor's CEO know about that from the sales team? The salespeople all knew about it because they were referring all their customers to them. Well, I'll tell you why, uh, James, I'm so glad you brought it up. So as a younger founder, you know, in the 90s, I coveted the information around M&A. And I thought, you know, erroneously that if you as the CEO and founder hold on to it, like you'll get the deal done. No one else should know because you also don't want to get distracted by M&A or somehow to have it leak out. I've done a 180 on that view now, obviously, because I'm older and wiser. I let our executive teams know fairly early on, like if M&A is going to be the most likely outcome, because that is the most likely outcome for startups who actually end up returning money investors, as we talked about before, then everybody needs to know about it. Because ultimately, I can't do it by myself. It's impossible. I've tried before. So the sales guy and the marketing chief and the CFO and others always know that we've got M&A opportunities floating around and they're thinking about them. And we bring them up in meetings. And I'll talk about like a few weeks ago, I said, hey, this public company, we, we actually have a partnership with them. And they're talking about it a little bit you know, with me. So I'm letting the whole team know, hey, it's early. Who knows if anything will happen? Here's probably why they want us, uh, the CEO told me on the phone. And it's good for everybody then to have that you know, in their back pockets. So absolutely, James, for sure, the sales guy, the marketing chief, they, they all know what's going on. So when they hear something now, they're not afraid to bring it to me, right? And talk about it in our team meetings. When, and then actually I wanna dig into David Martin's question here. David, if you're there, if you could come off mute and ask your question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to know how long a technical diligence process should really take and kind of how we should chronologically kind of put that out because, um, we would want to know like if we need a number on the table before we start showing what's under the hood. Well, look, David, a, yeah, go ahead, James. When you have a, when you have a signed LOI that you're really happy with. Okay. That's exactly. And I was going to say, I was going to say, James, in that LOI, you can also specify, you know, like how much of the, of the back end you'll show and the confidentiality provisions around it, maybe how you stamp the documents, you know, confidential. You, you could say if the deal breaks up, there's a data destruction clause. I mean, none of this stuff is foolproof, of course, for you're dealing with humans. Um, you could also potentially do, I don't know how many times, James, you've done a breakup fee. I like to ask for breakup fees now because you had so many broken deals in the past and like the buyer has no, I mean, aside from some legal and accounting and you know, getting some of their team members you know, involved, they don't really have that big of a cost fishing around. So the breakup fee can you know, get some of the bad actors you know, filtered and through. The other thing I've done is in, in, um, in a case where you have information, David, that is so, you know, so important, right? And if somebody saw it, you'd be, you'd be in trouble. You can actually use a third party. So, you know, there's normally gonna be a third party, you know, technical due diligence team that's being used uh, to vet your, your product. And what you might say is you might get the lawyers to agree that essentially that third party is going to, you know, have a report that just says, you know, you know the code looks great. It's backed up, whatever it is, it checks the boxes and it says it, it does what it says it's going to do. Right. But it doesn't actually reveal the secret sauce. I, you know, another example of that, we had a situation where the buyer wanted to see our, our clients contracts, but we didn't want them to know who our clients were in case the deal blew up, which it eventually did, by the way. 
So I essentially negotiated with the lawyers that the, the, their lawyer, the buyer's lawyers would have access to those contracts, get the information they needed. Back to what Samer was mentioning, are, can, can, you, can, you, you know, can you transfer the, the ownership of the contract so that the lawyers were able to do their job, but the buyers never knew who the contracts were signed with. So that might be a way around it. Yeah, I think it's a fair point though, David. You know, paranoia is good. I like paranoia. So it's a, it's a good thing to be paranoid about. Well, I just want to thank both of you for sharing your wisdom. I always love talking to people who have the expertise of being founders themselves as well as investors and, and really working with uh, companies throughout the, the process. So thank you both for sharing your wisdom. This has been a lot of fun. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.